0: If I had to pick one thing for being happier, I would say anything, if you're trying to figure out what to do with your time, energy, or money, anything that goes to relationships is something that's likely to make you happier. And it'll make you feel more supported. And it will also make you feel like you're better able to support others. And that is also a tremendous source of happiness. One of the best ways to make yourself happier is to make other people happier. And one of the best ways to make other people happier is to be happier yourself.
1: Hey everyone, Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 176 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course, have some fun along the way. Today, I am so excited to bring you my conversation with Gretchen Rubin. She is the New York Times best-selling author. She's well known for her book, The Happiness Project. She's also the podcaster behind the podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And in today's episode, we talk about how she came to be this expert, how she came to be the person that people think about going to when they want to get happier in their own lives. So much goodness in here. She gives us her backstory about how she was once clerking for Sandra Day O'Connor living in Washington, D.C. when she realized that she wanted to write a book. And, you know, it's so interesting her approach to going to write her first book and when she literally bought a book about how to write a book and follow the steps. And before you know it, (laughs) well, I think you can assume what happened next. Gretchen and I talk about everything from how to make a career pivot in your own life, how people can take steps to being happier in this quote-unquote new normal that we're in, the power of asking tough questions. We also talk about how she gave up sugar, (laughs) a little bit of a side note here, and how that helped her And of course, not so surprising, how you can get happier in your day to day. I mean, if you are looking for an episode with endless takeaways, this really, it's the one. So, so grateful for Gretchen and all of her insight, all of her goodness that she's sharing with you. And also Gretchen wanted to gift you all a little bit of a discount. She has a new line of journals that you can check out. We talk about them in the episode and she is offering the hurdlers a promo code for 10% off. So simply head on over to the-happiness-project.com or visit gretchenrubin.com and click the happiness project tab to snag yourself on today, use the code hurdle at checkout to get 10% off. So many good picks here. I highly recommend you head on over and check them out. Now, before we get into it today, I do wanna give some love to one of the newest sponsors on the show, and that is RevTown. Now, you may have seen me absolutely rave about RevTown before on social. RevTown's mission is to make your favorite pair of jeans, and I can say that they definitely make mine. They are inherently naturally inclusive. They're accessible to women and men of all sorts, and they are 100% dedicated to comfort in self and style. I am obsessed with the way that these jeans fit. As someone who I would say I have an athletic build. I've got a lot of loving in the thigh area, but a smaller waist situation. And so I appreciate that RevTown makes their denim with different body types in mind. Not to mention they have created styles that are definitely on trend, but they're not like trying too hard. Sometimes like I love a ripped denim, for example, but sometimes I go to put on a pair of jeans and I'm like, is this trendy or do I look like I got into a fight with a weed whacker? My dad would tell you that he thinks that ripped jeans are basically the latter. Anyway, huge fan of RevTown and I wanted to talk to you all about them and give them some love. So head on over to RevTownUSA.com to check them out for yourself. They call them the most comfortable jeans on the planet. I don't disagree. Again, that is RevTownUSA.com. The high rise skinny are my go-to, check them out. You won't regret it. Make sure you're following along with Hurdle on social. It's over at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily A Body. If you missed it, I announced the winners of last week's Season Seven premiere giveaway over on the weekly Hurdle newsletter. A link to subscribe is in the show notes. So make sure you click on over there to claim your prize if you haven't done so yet. And of course. Still timed to join the hurdle membership before things kick off on October 1st, head on over to hurdle.us slash membership for information about all of that. And last little bit of housekeeping here. Make sure you are in on Hurdle's new subscription SMS service. To get in on that, text the word WELCOME to 732HURDLER. Again, that is 732HURDLER. Text the word WELCOME to subscribe to keep up to date with all the latest exciting news from Hurdle going forward. I think that's it for now. With that, let's get to hurdling. Hurdling. Today, I'm sitting down with Gretchen Rubin. I feel like she needs no introduction, but you may all know of her from her slew of blockbuster titles, New York Times bestsellers. I'm talking Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, The Four Tendencies, also podcaster behind Happier, Gretchen Rubin. How are we? I'm so happy to be talking to you. (laughs) I hope this brings you happiness. I hope we're both working on our happiness together.
0: Absolutely no! I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I know we're interested in so many of the same things.
1: We are, we are, and I also know that we have a mutual interest in. I'm just going to throw this out here: the word "juge." This I, for the very first time, it came out of my mouth, and I was like,
0: "Wait, what?" You know, what just happened? Um, I didn't even know how to spell it. I'm like, "How did I use it?" It's this is how culture happens, right? Like how you you pick these things up without even realizing it, and then it's like. It's to, like, make something look a little more attractive by making, like, a slight change. And I was like, I even used it correctly in a sentence, just like in a fourth grade <laughs> spelling test.
1: But yes, now the I word love judge it. The is obscenely difficult to spell. Let it be known. I'm going to correctly spell it for the hurdlers who may want to write it down, use it in their own sentence. Z-H-U-Z-H. Who came up with that? Just like it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Z-H-U-Z-H. Yeah. Anyway, also, uh, we just need to, you know, double click on this for a second. You recently spoke with my dear friend, Liz Plosser. Yes, indeed. Wow. Ugh. Small world. Small, small world. She was recently on the show. Liz is actually my former boss from when I worked at at Self Magazine. It's been a, quite some time since since those days. But so excited for her and her new book, Own Your Morning, and and love to see when all of the circles kind of overlap in the good work that we're both trying to do. Yeah. so fun. So Gretchen Rubin, I mean, again, like I said, I feel like you need no introduction, but (laughs) in order for us to get to a lot of the topics that we want to talk about, talking about career pivoting and how people can take steps to be happy in this quote unquote new version of normal, I think it's really helpful if we do a little bit of a backstory dive. Mm -hmm. So Why don't we talk a little bit about how you got into being the person that people think about when they want to talk about getting happier?
0: (laughs) Well, it was kind of a multi-step process. Um, I started my career in law and I was actually clerking uh, for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court when I got an idea that ended up turning out to be my first book. But at that time I didn't, I didn't foresee myself becoming a writer um, I didn't even know that I was researching a book. I just, one of the things that's true about me and it's been true my whole life is I'll get very interested in a subject and I'll do a ton of reading and researching and I'll take a lot of notes. That's just sort of my thing. So I I, I was out of my lunch break one day. I was walking around the Capitol and I thought, what am I interested in that everybody in the world is interested in? It's just like a hypothetical question for me. And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex. And it was like power, money, fame, sex. And I instantly just started researching and researching and researching what seemed to me to be like these very linked ideas. And, and, I, and so this was familiar to me to kind of get preoccupied with an idea and really go deep into it. But this just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so um, at a certain point, I thought, well, this is the kind of thing a person would be doing if they were going to write a book. And then I thought, well, maybe I could write that book. And I went to a bookstore and got a book called something like How, How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal. Um, and I followed the directions and, and Power, Many, Fame, Sex was indeed my first book. <laughs> a lot of people think that The Happiness Project was my first book. And like many people, I was an overnight sensation ten year, after 10 years of working. Um, and so actually The Happiness Project was my fourth book. So I wrote my first book, then I wrote a biography of Winston Churchill and a biography of John F. Kennedy. And I wrote a sort of a strange art book um, called Profound Profane Waste. And then one day I thought, what do I want from life anyway? I want to be happy, but I don't spend any time thinking about how I can be happier or if you can make yourself happier. Then I got very preoccupied with that question, went to the running to the library, got a giant stack of books started researching happiness. And then one day it occurred to me, well, I've just been doing this for myself, but maybe this should be my next book, my happiness project. And that's how I turn my attention into happiness and, and, and good habits and all the things that flow from the larger subject of happiness.
1: Wow. So, I mean, the first question I have is, did you grow up being a super inquisitive person? Because it seems as though this is the kind of behavior that, someone would need to see modeled to kind of act on it and feel comfortable saying like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do X. Like it seemed like you were so sure in your steps. Well, I was a huge reader. I
0: mean, I've been a huge reader my whole life and, and I majored in English. And so I did a lot of things that a person would do and actually going to law school. There's a lot you have to unlearn about writing if you're trained as a lawyer, but there's a lot of good things that you learn um about uh, about writing and logical argument and research um from 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 being a lawyer um i didn't have a model for this um and it's funny you mentioned i have a podcast happier with gretchen rubin my co-host is my sister elizabeth craft she's five years younger than i am and now she's a showrunner and tv producer in hollywood so she's a tv writer but right out of college she started writing kind of pulp fiction for for teenagers and so Even though I was five years older, she was really a model for me of someone who was a professional writer. That was her job was to write. And and at that time, as funny as it is for me now to think of this, at that time, I didn't know anybody who wrote books. And so it was very helpful for me to be like, well, Elizabeth is doing this in a different way. But, you know, same deal. Um, I think that was very helpful for me to imagine myself uh, moving
1: forward like that so, so special. And then you mentioned, obviously, clerking and being in Washington, D.C., a huge career pivot to go from that trajectory to deciding, you know what, I'm going to write. So talk to me about perhaps some of the hesitancy, if any, that you had during that period and advice that you'd give for someone else who's interested in making a career pivot of their own.
0: Well, you know, it's one of these things where you put one foot in front of the other. And so looking back, it seems like much more uh, not dramatic, but but it's much more abrupt because at the time I was like, well, why don't I get this book? And like, what does it take? Like, well, and then I'm like, oh, I guess I would need to get an agent. How does a person get an agent? You know, I put step by step. So I think one thing is to take it step by step and don't expect yourself to get from A to Z overnight. Um, But I did have a moment where I was starting to think about this and And I, you know, and I thought this, if there was ever a time when my clerkship comes to an end and I had taken another really cool job at the Federal Communications Commission, but it was also it was short and it was also coming to an end. I was like, this is my opening. Like, if I'm ever going to take this risk, now is the time to try because I have this sort of natural opening. Um, And it occurred to me, you know, at this point, I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. This is my time to either succeed or fail. And one of the things about not trying is then you don't risk failure, but then you can't succeed. And I was like, I want to just if I'm gonna fail, I want to just like fail and move on. I didn't like sort of being in this liminal state where, uh, like, where I was sort of neither one thing or the other. And so one thing I would say to people is to like move forward, you know, take steps forward. And and a question that I often ask myself when you're sort of like, well, should I do this or not? You know, sometimes sometimes it can feel very hard to decide even how to think about a choice that you're facing. I often say to myself, choose the bigger life. And only you know what the bigger life is for you. And different people could have it. You know, the bigger life for someone else would have been a legal career. Absolutely. Um, But when I framed the question for myself that way, it was obvious to me that if I could make a go of it, the bigger life was to be the life of, to have the life of a writer. And so that's kind of clarifying because sometimes, I don't know about you, but like my pros and cons lists are often very evenly balanced. (laughs) And I'm like, I, I, I can't reason my way out of this decision. You know, it's like, I can't do it on the, on the facts and the numbers. I have to find a way to try to plumb my, plumb my depths. And that's hard.
1: And I mean, this idea of I would rather be happy trying something that's unknown versus unhappy in, you know, the comfortable, I think that so many struggle from leaving, you know, that place of comfort to go towards something else that they want. Well, but here's the thing about being
0: happy. I think sometimes, and I couldn't say this if I were a scientist, but happiness does not always make us feel happy. And so if you say like, I'll be happy if I give up my legal job and try writing, well, you're not probably going to feel very happy. You're probably going to feel insecure and anxious and kind of like uninformed and out of your depth and everybody knows what's going on and everybody got the secret memo and what happened to me when I felt like I was on the top of my game and I knew what I was doing. It might not make you feel happy, like in terms of like, oh, I feel good right now. It's more, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of happiness that's more like I'm living up to my my, the life that I want for myself.
1: And that that is often
0: very painful.
1: <laughs> well, there, but I mean, as someone, and I think that you and I kind of operate in the same way from the bit I know about you and from listening to you, there's so much thrill in like hunting your own potential when you're willing to take that leap, right? But some people don't like thrills. I don't know <laughs> that I'm a, thr- a person who's thrill-seeking or
0: adventure-seeking. You know, I just think sometimes you do something because you know it's what you want and you just sort of accept that sometimes things just maybe just don't feel that good, like as they're unfolding for a while. Um, I think for some people it does. And it's really exciting and fun. I happen not to be one of those kinds of people. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it has to stop you from going after what you want.
1: So for you in those first maybe months or couple of years after making this pivot, what would you say were the biggest hurdles for you?
0: The biggest riddles was I didn't know what to do. You know, I had a book and I'm I'm the kind of person who's really good at like taking a book and following directions. But it's one thing to read like a paragraph in a book. And it's like, you know, and another thing to turn that into into uh, into action. And so part of it was this: I just I, I I was entering an entirely new field. And so I had to try to become more knowledgeable about I mean, I knew tons and tons about literature and books and reading, but I didn't know about the book industry. Um, And so one of the things I would say to anybody is really educate yourself on like, if you want to have a job in that industry, you have to think about like, well, how does that industry work? What are the what's everybody in that? If you were in that field, what would be the big news that you would be talking about? Um, How do people think about things? Like one mistake I see a lot of new writers making is they think what people care about is how how intensely I want to write or how deeply committed I am to my subject. But you see, if you're an agent or an editor, what you really worry about is, is there an audience for this book? Are people going to be excited to read this book? Are you a person who can actually complete this book? Um, So they're thinking about different things. Both of those things are important, but I think sometimes people don't, you know, you have to think about, well, how do I fit my, if I want this to be my profession, how do I fit, how do I think about this in terms of doing it professionally, because there's some things that you do that you love to do that you wouldn't do professionally. But then sometimes maybe you want to think about, you know, it's like if you were love to do photography and then you're like, now I want to switch to be a wedding photographer. Well, now you have a whole bunch of new skills that you need, which you can get. Um, but you start need needing to think about what's the business of being a wedding photographer, not just like, ooh, Maybe I'll put another tree in the foreground. It's like, okay, yeah, that's still important, but there's this other thing too.
1: There's this other thing too. Yeah. And then in this, I'm curious to know if you struggled with the idea of feeling like you weren't doing enough while you were trying to figure it out.
0: I mean, I was always trying to do more. I was always trying to do whatever that whatever I could. So yeah, I think I did have the feeling like, is there more? Is there more? What should I be doing? Sometimes it's painful to be like, I would do more, but I don't know what to do. You know, I think that's also very frustrating when you think I want to go the extra mile, but I don't even know what direction to go in, which is why I think getting getting as educated as you can be kind of can help you manage that kind of anxiety, because the more you know, the more you're like, oh, I see what I could do that would be a good use of my time and my energy. And I see the things that I don't need to worry about. You know, the more the more the more you bring to it, the more you can get from it.
1: And I know in writing The Happiness Project, you talked about not necessarily at all becoming an overnight success, but maybe it looking that way. No. I know in writing The the Happiness Project, you did something that a lot of authors don't conventionally do, which is draft a lot of this book, if not yes. the whole book, before really uh, signing a book deal, correct? Yes, exactly. So talk to me about that process. Well, this has happened to me more than more than once. Um, I will say that, where I can't really
0: like when you're trying to get somebody to buy a book and you know get excited about a book, you have to explain what it is, and you have to do the whole elevator pitch where you can really sum it up and crisply convey it. And a lot of times, I'm sort of like, I I don't think I can really explain it until I've written it. I don't know what I think until I write it, and I don't know (laughs) what to think. by the time I know what I think, the book will be written. And so um, I, I have a hard time kind of knowing what I think in advance. I think some people know very very well what they think, and then they're just writing what they think, whereas a lot of times I'm sort of trying to figure out, and I'm often very surprised by what I find. I, I often find things that I didn't expect to find or things that I thought were true weren't true. Um, so, um, well, like my book Better Than Before is out, all about habit change, how we can make or break our habits. That book, I was able to explain what it would be, but I didn't, even because I could describe it even though I didn't know the structure and exactly what my conclusions would be. It's like, okay, do you want to learn how to master your habits? Because I'm going to figure that out. Um, but I certainly wouldn't have been able to say, um, you know, what's the framework that I'm going to use to describe that answer? Because I took me, I had to write a whole book before. I really probably had to write two books to get the one book, uh, to decide decide what I thought.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And especially because of like the concept and the whole framework of the Happiness Project. For those who may be unfamiliar, if there are any listening to the pod, why don't you talk a little bit about what the Happiness Project really is?
0: So it was a year-long experiment that I did on myself. I was my own guinea pig to try to see, you know, uh, is it possible to make yourself happier, healthier, more productive, more creative? You know, what is happiness? Could I make myself happier? And if I could make myself happier, what would I do? Um, and what would I try to uh, adjust, or you know what would I try to have more of or less of? And so I figured that a year was the kind of the right amount of time for there to be real change, but it felt you know manageable. And so I gave every month a theme related to happiness, something that I wanted to work on. So it might have been friendship or energy. Um, And then I would give myself a handful of concrete, manageable resolutions to try that I thought would help my happiness in that area. And so it's very practical um, and very much like, what can you do tomorrow without spending a lot of time, energy or money? You know, so it's not like I'm going to go on a three week silent meditation retreat because I'm like, I really have to have things that I can do as part of my ordinary day, as part of my ordinary routine. But it turns out that for me, and and since the book's come out, I've talked to so many people. For most of us, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. There's plenty of things that we can do to move the needle to make ourselves happier within the context of our ordinary day, even if we're very, very busy.
1: And I think that that's like what makes the whole concept so accessible, right? I mean, you approached it in such a way that the everyday person or someone who you know relates to you can certainly go and create their own happiness project of sorts and in setting, you know, the, the theme, so to speak, or choosing each value for every month, how did you settle on those 12 specifics? Well, that's a really interesting question because, you know,
0: I picked the things where I thought I had the most to gain in terms of happiness, but other people would pick other things. So for instance, um, I've never been a person who's particularly inclined toward music, but for some people, music is like an incredibly important element of their life. And I've talked to many people where music was a whole theme. So they might've had like, their resolutions might've had things like get back into practicing an instrument or learn a new instrument or join a group or a choir or make an effort to listen to new music consistently or go to live concerts or, you know, there's a lot of things you can do if you want to bring that into your life more. For me, it didn't. It wasn't something that for me I wanted to work on. Um, and I would say that that's the one of the big things that I learned that surprised me is that there it, that that we all want different things. Like we have different interests and aims and values, and we all need to get there in a different way. Like I love to do something very consistently. If it's important to me, I try to do it every single day. For me, it's easier if something happens every single day. Other people want to feel more spontaneity. They want to have a different kind of approach. And there, so there is no magic one size fits all solution. And it's interesting like, because i've talked to so many people i was i created um i've created these new journals because i realized like a lot of people have the aim of like i want to keep a journal that's a very very common resolution that people have whether they want a journal because they want reflection or they want a journal because they want to like track how many miles they've run in a day you know they want to keep some kind of record of their life and i realized people are very different. Some people want to don't break the chain where they like check it off if they did it and they write down how many miles. And then they have like a little note where they write down all the different routes they did or the different hikes they did or, you know, like that. And then some people want to write one sentence every day. They don't want to keep a traditional journal where they're writing a couple of pages. That's too much work. So they want to write just one sentence. That's a great way to keep a journal. There's, you know, you don't have to, just because something doesn't work for you as a, a method or a tool doesn't mean that you failed at an aim. It just means like, okay, well, is there a different way that I could meet this aim? Because we have different aims and we also have different styles.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you're truly talking about the power of habit right here. Yeah. So for those that struggle to create and maintain habits. They maybe get into something for a week or two, and then they fall off the bandwagon, which can totally feel certainly discouraging. What helpful tools or suggestions do you have for them to get in the groove and stay in the groove? Right. If you're trying,
0: if you're struggling, as many people do, to form a consistent habit, here's a couple things to think about. Um, I have a Four Tendencies framework that divides people into uh, upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. And if you want to take a quiz and find out what you are, you can go to GretchenRubin.com slash Four Tendencies. and take a quick quiz there and find it out and you get a little report on yourself. It's very helpful. I'm an
1: upholder, Gretchen.
0: Oh, I, I, Emily, I, I knew that <laughs> 10 minutes in. I, and I love it cause I'm an upholder too. So we're, we're, we're on the same way. So anyway, so that's the quiz. If you want to find that out and understand what it means to be an upholder. Um, so it's all there. But what I will say just sort of generally, even if you don't know about um, those, those categories, is that for many, many people, um, they really need outer accountability to meet an inner expectation. So if you said your things, said to yourself, things like, I always keep my promises to other people, but I have trouble keeping my promises to myself. I have trouble making time for self-care. I have t- trouble putting myself first. I always give 110% to my clients or my customers or my family, or, but I can't, don't have any time for me. Then what I would say you need, I'm saying you're an obliger in my framework and you need outer accountability even to meet an inner expectation. So if you want to read more, join a book group. If you want to go for a run every day, go with a friend who's going to be annoyed if you don't show up, you know, work out with a trainer at a gym, um, raise money for a charity. um, you You want to create a system of outer accountability. For some people, that is what is necessary. Um, so one thing to think about is like, do I do I do better when I have accountability? Because some people do not, rebels in my my framework often do not like to have accountability. They don't want somebody looking over their shoulder. They don't want somebody knowing what they're doing or putting things on the calendar particularly. But maybe you know about yourself like, oh, wow, I really do do better when I'm in some kind of framework of accountability. So that's one thing to think about. And another thing to think about, there is just hilarious research showing how much more likely we are to do something if it's even the teensiest, tiniest bit more convenient. So I've talked to people who sleep in their workout clothes so they don't have to get dressed in the morning. Um, There's this research showing that if there's a salad bar and people have to use tongs instead of spoons, they take less food because it's just a little bit more effort to use tongs. So anything you can do to shave off, if you can use a hook instead of a hanger, if you can pay a little bit more, for um, a gym that's right across the street from your office, you know, like when everything's back to normal, than one that's like three blocks away. Any little bit of convenience tends to make it easier. And you can also use it on the opposite. Any inconvenience makes it harder to do something. So I've talked to people who wanted to watch less TV. They weren't giving up TV. They wanted to watch less. So they put their remote control in a really inconvenient place. So they wouldn't just like you know, be like, oh, I'll just wander by and watch for five minutes. Cause like, oh, it's too much of a hassle go get the remote, you know? Um, so anything you don't want yourself to do, make that inconvenient because a lot of times just that little bit of friction is all you need to kind of turn your path. And that's when habits become automatic, you know, uh, uh, effortless. Um, there's no decision fat- fatigue. It's just, it just happens.
1: Product of our environment. You know, it's yep, interesting. True. I feel like with one of the the biggest habits, so to speak, or journeys that, I went on when I was younger, back in college, I lost a ton of weight uh, Mm. with the help of Weight Watchers. And for me, it was never, now obviously called WW, it was never about really, to be honest with you, using the WW plan Mm -hmm. as it was about the fact that I had to show up somewhere on like Tuesday nights and get on a scale in front of another person. And that accountability factor was the thing that helped me stay on track. Now, these days, I would say I have a lot more Intrinsic motivation. I have progressed along my journey and, you know, done my fair share of study reading and book reading and talking and reflecting. And so it's interesting, though, because these different, you know, archetypes or these different types of people or types of habit formation, you might be one way for one thing and find that it's a little bit different for something else. Yeah. Well,
0: it's interesting kind of along those lines. Another distinction that I found when I was studying habits is abstainers and moderators. And this is when you're facing a strong temptation, not a weak temptation, a strong temptation. So like I have a really, really strong sweet tooth. And what I found is that if you're an abstainer like me, it's easier to have none. It's easier to give it up altogether Mm -hmm. than it is to have a little bit. And so I could never understand like Oh, I just have one little square of fine chocolate and that's all I need. Oh, just have oh. half a brownie. That's all you want. I'm like, the minute I have half, I want three. Yo, same. But moderators are different. They're the kind of people that that want the one square. They do better when they have a little bit, when they have it sometimes. And they get kind of panicky and rebellious if they're told they can never have anything. And so... And like, I'm a moderator when it comes to something like wine, I don't really care about wine. So I can have half a glass of wine. Whereas a friend of mine said, it's none or four glasses. There is no in between for me. So she's a, so you, you might be an abstainer about one kind of temptation, but then other things you're like, eh, it doesn't really matter. But when I realized that I'm an abstainer, I, because all these moderators were like, Clearly, sincerely giving me this advice that obviously didn't work for me. And I, as an abstainer, was like, say to people like, well, why don't you just give it up cold turkey? Why do you keep breaking the rules? Like, just like, just get it off your plate. And then finally I realized there's no one right way. There's no one best way. It's just whatever is better for you. And moderators don't understand that for an abstainer like me, abstaining is easier. It's the easier way. And it's hard for me to understand that for a moderator... That's easier. It's kind of hard to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. But once you realize like, well, people are different, like, oh, I'm married to somebody who's a moderator, but I'm an abstainer. So now it's not about convincing someone else that I'm right. It's about how do we create a situation where we both thrive?
1: And that's such an important question, right? My father's the kind of guy that can keep like six different flavors of ice cream in the freezer. And like, I'm sure some of them like have been in there. No offense, dad, but like maybe for a year,
0: like the covered with the crystals. And you're like, how does this happen? (laughs)
1: No. how I, does it happen? How does mystery. it happen? It wouldn't stay that way in my home. Not at all. Because again, going back to what we were just talking about, a product of our environment, right? But see, for a moderator, it doesn't bother them. Whereas oh. like for, for for an abstainer,
0: it calls to you. You're like, there's one, just one bite, just two more bites. Have a bite of each flavor. You know what I mean? It's, it's Monday. It's my birthday. It's raining outside. I had a terrible day. I've been so good. I'll be so good starting tomorrow. Like there's a million things. But for some people, it's like, I like knowing that it's there. And if I have a little, you know, I want a little something sweet, I'll just go get a bite or two. I'm like, that works for you. And that's great. But if there's somebody in the house who's like, truly, it's just going to weigh on my mind in the middle of the night, wake me up. And like, I'm going to be dragged in there by like the tractor beam of uh, the Death Star. Like, we got to figure out how to work that out, you know, because, because we're different. And that's, that's okay. We don't have to agree on what's the best way. We just have to say, well, this is how, this is what works for me.
1: taking a quick break to talk to you about my sponsors. First up, Baron Fig. You all know how much I am obsessed with Baron Fig's products. They make what they call tools for thinkers, ranging from their confidant journals and their guided editions to their Squire pen, their desk accessories. There is so much goodness. At the Baron Fig website. In my eyes, there is absolutely nothing better than feeling organized when I sit down at my desk and also starting every single day with a fresh blank notebook page. It's where I jot my thoughts down in the confidant journal and end every single entry with a moment of gratitude. There are few things more enjoyable than writing some words in a lay flat absolutely beautiful cloth bound notebook. So if you feel me on this, you have got to get in on the Baron Fig action. Now, of course, they have an awesome deal for the hurdler audience. Head on over to barrenfig.com slash hurdle and make sure to use code hurdle21 at checkout to get 20% off your minimum purchase of $25 today. Again, that is barrenfig.com slash hurdle. Use code hurdle21 to get 20% off your purchase today next i want to give some love to my friends at inside tracker now i am always seeking to do all the right things for my body so i can provide more energy better sleep and a healthy immune system you know i want to live longer i want to live better and i want to live healthier so obviously i was super excited to try out inside tracker which is an ultra personalized performance system that analyzes data from your blood dna lifestyle and fitness tracker to help optimize your body and reach your health and wellness goals. And I'll be a little bit honest, a couple months ago, I was feeling a little bit sluggish when it came to my marathon training. But with one mobile blood draw and a DNA swab, Insight Tracker identified that I had lower iron and ferritin levels. Not only that, they then transformed that data into meaningful insights and customized an action plan for me with science-backed nutrition, fitness, and lifestyle recommendations. I just got my second blood draw last week and both my iron and my ferritin levels improved, and I'm feeling a whole lot better when it comes to my workouts. Now, of course, Inside Tracker is offering hurdlers an amazing discount. Head on over to InsideTracker.com hurdle, and you will receive 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store for a limited time. Again, that is I-N-S-I-D-E-T-R-A-C-K-E-R.com hurdle to receive 25% off the entire store. Sure. Let's get back to it. Let's go back a little bit to your story and talk about after the happiness project comes out. How are you feeling at this point? Because again, we've referenced a couple of times now. uh, It's seemingly being this scenario where it was like, this woman came out of nowhere and she is brilliant. And oh my goodness. And you are like, I've been here, but Mm -hmm. dot, dot, dot. Oh, it was great. I mean, because your
0: big (laughs) fear as a writer is that you can't keep going. Uh, You know, so you're like, you're like, I want to be able to write, keep writing. Um, And I am so lucky because every book that I write, I say to myself many times when I'm writing it, It'll never be this good again. This is the best it's ever going to get. I'm never going to be so interested in a subject. This is never going to be so juicy and so delicious. I am never going to have this much fun again. And then with my next book, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is the best. Now I'm at the top. Now I'm at the most interesting subject. Um, So I'm really fortunate because all my books kind of naturally have led into the next book. And so I am never sort of like anxiously awaiting some kind of lightning bolt. I'm always sort of like already starting to think about something and get interested in something. And then I poke around and a lot of, you know, I have to figure out like what, what, how, what my way in is or kind of what my, what my, what my perspective is on something. But, but I've, but I always know sort of what the next thing is going to be. And that is one thing um, when I was growing up, my, my father would always say to my sister and me, enjoy the process. Meaning if you can enjoy the process outcomes, don't matter as much. It's not that they're not important, but it's like everything doesn't stand or fall on an outcome. If you've enjoyed the process. And that's definitely true as a writer. Cause I've had some books do very well. I've had some book. If a book flops, what they tell you is that it fails to it failed to find its audience. That's the delicate way they tell you. And eh, that thing was a big flop. So and I've had books that failed to find their audience, um, but because I have enjoyed the process so much, I still have enjoyed it. You know, I'm still like, I loved that book. I loved writing that book. And, and and now I've got something else that I'm really, really excited about. And so, um, and, and writers will often give that advice to each other. It's like, don't hang all your hopes on this book, like have your next, your next book. And so you're excited and you're moving forward because you don't want to get too hung up on something that's really in, in many ways outside your control. And so you want to, you just want to manage your expectations and just Keep moving forward Um, it's, it's, it's a milestone in the life of a writer, but it's not it's not it's not like everything rises or falls on like what happens like on a in a particular month.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd love to wrap on this concept for just a second because I actually uh, it's super applicable to something that I'm going through and I know something that many individuals struggle with pinning all of your uh, perhaps self-proclaimed success on the outcome that is uncontrollable yes. like all yeah. you can do is pour, whatever you can and whatever you have into something and hope for the best, right. Do everything you can within your power to, uh, as my family motto is to do good right now, I'm dealing with an injury. I'm supposed to run a marathon in two and a half weeks or I think we're under that now. And I'm at a place actually where I'm quite, uh, at peace with whatever decision that I'm going to have to call in the next, you know, week or so, because I like you, as you're referencing really, take appreciation for the process that got me here. Right. And the things that I gained in the opportunity costs that go hand in hand with running the marathon, not basing all the success on that final event for individuals who struggle with this mindset, perhaps, you know, as many would call it at times a growth mindset, what is it that you tell them to help them kind of get over that hurdle?
0: Well, one thing I'll, I'll tell them because I tell it to myself all the time, like whatever your aim is, like your aim is to run that marathon. My aim is to like write a, a book that, that finds its audience. There are almost always, there are many ways for that to succeed. So you're running a marathon and there are many ways for this, for this marathon to succeed for you. One is that you actually run it and you have a wonderful adventure and that's really exciting and that's something that you hope will happen. But if you've enjoyed the process, one of the ways that it's succeeded is that it has already succeeded because you've had all the training and all the planning that you've been doing along the way. And another way that it succeeded is that it's keeping you connected to your identity as a runner and being part of this group of people who are marathoners. And that's like an exciting, that's an exciting, I'm sure that's a very, it's not part, an identity that I identify with, but it sounds, seems very cool from the outside. (laughs) It's a really, you know, it's a passionate identity. If people are really committed to that, that's a way to succeed. And even the idea that like, you know what? I've come to a point where I am not going to overtrain. And I've pro- you probably made that mistake in the past where like you didn't listen to your body and you took two steps forward and 10 steps back. I had a friend who loved running so much that instead of being uh, you know off on the sidelines for 2 weeks it was 6 months cuz she like rebroke her toe and it was this whole big huge thing. That's not, you can be like one way that this succeeded is that I handled it in the way that's right for me in the long term and I yeah. so I've learned from my mistakes and this is going to help me going forward. Maybe I'll write an article about it. I'll I'll do a podcast about it and talk about going through this. And many, many people will benefit from my experience and like their lives will be happier and healthier um, because of what I learned from going through this. That's a huge success. So there are many ways for something to succeed. And so if you just pick one metric, like on this morning, am I going to get up and run a marathon? Yes or no? Well, that's a very narrow window of success. But if you think, well, how are other ways that this, what, what else, ha- there are many ways for this to succeed for me, many, many elements of it um, leading off in all different directions. And totally. some of which I might not even be able to foresee at this point, I have to kind of go through it and then see, see what comes of it. A lot of times very unexpected things happen,
1: you know. Did you yourself lean into community a lot during those quote unquote flop moments for the books? Well, you know, at that point, I didn't really have a community because this was
0: mm. a while back. And so I did. I, and in fact, but but that's a very astute question, because when my book it was called it's 40 ways to look at JFK. It's a book that I love. I'm very proud of that book. I loved writing it. It didn't find its audience for reasons that I understand now. Learn from that. But one of the things that it taught me, and this is one of those things where, what do you know what's good news and what's bad news? Because sometimes that you think is like a big failure ends up being really important to later success or adventure. But I was so, I felt so powerless. I'm like, there's so many people who are interested in the life of JFK. I truly believe that I have a book that they would be fascinated by, but I can't tell them about the book. The only way I can do it is if somebody like writes a review of it, because this was like before the internet and all this kind of, you know, it was just as the, there was internet, but like it wasn't where it is now. And then I thought, you know what? I don't want to feel this way again. I want to be in contact with people who are interested in the same subjects that I am. I want to be able to talk to people who share my interests about what I'm excited about and let them know what I've done. If I've done something that I think they would be interested in too. And that's what got me to start a blog so far back when I started writing about happiness. I did that because I'm like, I want to reach out to people now before I even have a book and so that's when I started to build that community, because but it came out of that feeling of I don't have a community and I wish so much that I did, that now going forward I'm really going to figure out how to create that. And of course, and, and since then, I just have gone deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper because I realized just like it's like like this vast, limitless, treasure trove resource you know source of enthusiasm and engagement. Um, So, so I didn't think about it until you posed the question, but I think, I guess, yes, I guess it was my lack of community that got me
1: to create a community. But Um, how indicative of the kind of person that you are, right? Because for so many, that feeling of loneliness often transfers or transforms into great overwhelm and a little mm, bit of self-loathing. So rather than lingering in that malaise, so to speak, you were like, okay, I feel alone and without and I'm going to do something about that.
0: Well, it's very true that um, this this is something that we talk about on the Happier Podcast all the time. That 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 action is the antidote to anxiety. And so often, you're exactly right. When you feel that anxiety, when you feel overwhelmed, or like maybe like oh, oh gosh, like I'm such a loser, um, <laughs> it's not when you feel like taking action or reaching out. But that but it's but if you do, if you can get yourself to take even a small step it often makes you feel much less anxious because you see like I'm taking action. I have my self-efficacy. Like we'll see where this goes. It sort of gets you moving. Um, and I mean, I remember very clearly when I started my, the first time I was on my blog, I'm like, well, no one will ever see this. So it doesn't matter. You know, stakes are very low. I'm just doing this for like an experiment. I'm just doing like to poke around. Um, there's no audience. So, you know, who cares? Uh, Well, little did I know, um, but it all happened very gradually too. I think sometimes people are like, you know, we often create a false choice or like, it's either this or this, it's either nowhere or it's overwhelming. I either have no footprint or I'm going to be trolled by internet jerks (laughs) morning, noon and night for the rest of my life. It's like, you think there's something in between that? Because I really don't think those are the only two paths that are in front of you. You know, sometimes people catastrophize. Um, So a little bit of action often goes a long way towards uh, helping people with like when they're feeling anxiety.
1: A little bit of action goes a long way. You also mentioned a buzzword before that I just want to touch on quickly. And that is the word identity. For many, uh, you know, there are circumstances beyond our control that strip away a part of our identity, whether perhaps you were a wife and now you're not a wife anymore, or back to the example of like, I'm still a runner, but I'm not currently running for, for individuals who have to struggle with that transition although at times it might be brief and for times it might be forever how does someone cope with that loss of identity
0: this is such a profound question and i have to admit that i was years into the research on this until i really understood how powerful how absolutely significant this idea of what what are your and we all have multiple identities so what are your identities and sometimes and I mean, and it comes up in all different complicated ways. And I'm sure you've seen this, too, with the people you talk to. Like, sometimes people will be like, well, I'm not really a yoga person. I, you know, I can't claim to be a yoga person. I'm like, well, that's kind of funny because to me, you do yoga three or four times a week and you've been doing that for a couple of years. And they're like, oh, but, you know, I can't really say that I'm doing I'm a big yoga person. I'm like, heck, yes, you can. Like, there's no accrediting Uh, body to, you know, yeah, your your actions, that is your identity. You should own that identity and feel good about that identity. Then sometimes people have identities that are not good for them where they're like, they kind of say like, oh, well, I could never do that because, you know, I'm so disorganized. I can never put anything away. I'm like, well, don't, you don't have to buy into that identity so much because then maybe you, you don't lean in when you feel the urge for organization. That's, that's obviously like a very shallow kind of example, but but sometimes people have identities that that sort of are, are stumbling blocks for them or, or, or like make them feel like it's so core to their identity that they have certain kind of behaviors that they couldn't possibly break them. Um, like just for an example, I know somebody who said, well, I really identified as a baker, like I'm the person bringing cookca- cookies and cupcakes and I'm the one, you know, bringing desserts and surprising people on their birthdays. And she said, when I gave up sugar, I had to give up that identity. Like I could cook in other ways, but that kind of sort of pastry baker I had to let go of. And she said that, like you say, even that was painful because it meant rethinking my identity. What does it mean if I can't be like, I'm the fun, super fun baker now that I'm doing something that for her, she had developed diabetes. She really, really wanted to do that. So she had to grapple with that identity and it is hard sometimes we do it by choice as in her case well sort of sort of her choice sort of not her choice sometimes it's it's not your choice like you're getting a divorce like you say um sometimes it's like oh i blew out my knees and so now i can't do mountain climbing anymore cuz i just you know so it was taken you know it was it it's it wasn't my choice to to change that and i think i think it's something to really think about and address and to acknowledge the pain of it um and then to think about well are there other identities that might be that might be related to that, or that might give me the same kind of satisfaction. Maybe I can't go mountain climbing anymore, but I could go walking, I could do a gentle hike and that taps into my other, an aspect of my identity, which is that I'd love to be out in nature. I want to be all alone and feel like there's no one around for miles and it's just me in the natural world. It's like, well, you can do that in other ways other than mountain climbing. That was one way and you can't do that. And that is sad. but. There are other ways to claim that identity for yourself in a way that works for you now. But it it's surprised, you like knowing myself is so easy. Like, who am I? Just hang out with myself all day long. Like, super <laughs> obvious. Um, but it's actually quite hard to know ourselves. And sometimes we don't want to admit things that we we identify with, or a friend of mine wanted to cut back on drinking. She didn't want to give up drinking, but she wanted to cut back and she said it's hard for me because I feel like I'm the fun one. I'm the one that says, let's do it. I'm the one that says, let's order another round. Like, and I'm like, but you're still fun. You would always be fun. You're super fun. And she said, you know what? I am super fun. I'm like, you're super fun at breakfast. Like you don't need, you don't. that's, it doesn't depend on that, you know, but she had to think that through.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally, I totally hear you. I could literally talk to you in so many different like directions for forever about everything. But you did mention something in here that I feel like is going to be helpful to touch on really quick, which is you were talking about the other woman who was trying to give up sugar. And I know that this is something that you did. So yes. if you have uh, talked to us a little bit about uh, what that experience was like for you and maybe some takeaways that you have from it, because I know that it is something that so many of us think about doing pretty regularly.
0: Yeah. I love it. I mean, and I'm not saying everybody would want to do it or that everybody uh, should do it or everybody would do it the way that I did it. I'm just, so I'll just talk about my experience. Yeah. As I said, I have a, I have a very, very strong, sweet tooth and it was just this noise in my head all the time. Now, later, more, more, one, two, three, uh, does this count? What about this? And, um, and it was just sort of always nagging at me. And, um, and then I just decided, you know, I'm gonna give up sugar. And I basically give up all carbs. So I'm one of those, I'm really one of those bonkers, low carb people that you read about. Like I really eat no carbs except for like <laughs> nuts and vegetables. Um, and I just loved it because then all that noise went out of my head. It was so boring. It was so draining. It's just like, it's off the table. And now I can go, I, I, I can have ice cream in the freezer and it doesn't bother me. And I can sit you know, like at a table with a big plate of cookie, fresh baked chocolate chip cookies in the middle of the table. And I'm not resisting it. I don't even notice them um, because I just gave up sugar. So, and so that really, really works for me. And it just kind of, it just kind of, it, it, it made me enjoy food more because people were like, but you're giving up so much pleasure. And I'm like, For me, it wasn't like that. For me, it's like I feel more pleasure now in food. Um, Mm. It feels much less complicated and much less draining. And I also would have a thing where I would get super hungry because I would have kind of spikes and drops and and like shaking hungry. Um, And now it's like a much more even kind of like gradual hunger mounting, which is just kind of... In my day-to-day life i just find it much more pleasant to like have that kind of pattern in my in my kind of my rhythm of my day um but what i would say and again this kind of goes to abstainer moderator for me as an abstainer it was just like okay that's off the table and it, it was not it was like okay you know like once i just knew i wasn't having any it was a lot easier um i will say that for some some people don't want to do it this way and that don't break the chain journal that i was talking about a lot of people use it like that because they're like Well, maybe I don't want to do it every day, but I want to do it most days. So I want to have an easy where I can just like check it off or like, I want to track it, you know, or sometimes when people are contemplating a big habit change like this, they want to kind of monitor their behavior in advance, which is often very helpful to see like, well, where am I now? Like. Maybe I think I do this, but I actually don't do that. Or maybe I actually eat pretty healthy except on the weekends. And so maybe this is really a weekend problem. It's not like mm. a whole week problem, or maybe this is a travel problem, or maybe this is maybe I just, maybe what I want to do is stop eating after dinner. Like in, a, in the United States, people eat a tremendous amount of like their daily intake after dinner. Right. And so maybe you're like, well, look now that I like I'm tracking my habits, I'm, I'm seeing that's a pattern. And so I think sometimes when people want to like tackle really big behavior change, thinking about it kind of like day to day, what do I do and what do I want to do can be a really, really helpful strategy for people who, um, who find, it, find it easy to do. Like some people, they're like, ah, eh, no, like throw that thing away. I do not want to use that. It's like, okay, that's not going to work for you. Fine. Like don't try <laughs> to force it. Find a different tool. But, a, but I've just found over time this streak approach and the, and the kind of reflecting on what I do
1: approach really for many people gives them a lot of insight and a lot of motivation. Right. Right. And I mean, in this, you're also saying that it's important to be honest with yourself and ask yourself (laughs) tough questions. Yes. (laughs) Oh
0: yeah. Oh, you speak. Uh, I think you, yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes, people. Are, yes, yes. Well, this is why it's really important to do it day to day. And 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 researchers talk about this problem all the time. They'll do research. They're like, yeah, what do you? What did? Where were you eating a month ago? And it's like people are just making that up. They ha- we have no idea, and we're wildly more likely to. We tip the scales in our in our own favor. Like you know, you remember the the things that you're. Uh, oh, I remember that. You know that extremely healthy meal that I cooked after I went to the farmer's market, and then you're like. Mm, those other things kind of slide out of my mind. I don't I don't remember that 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 particular uh, you know, trip to the to the strip mall. Um yeah. So absolutely honesty. Uh, if you want if you wanna if you wanna improve things or know yourself better, we
1: we have to be honest. And it's hard. It's often very hard. It's often very hard. I mean, beyond uh, talking to yourself about what you're eating and perhaps not being completely candid about writing all of those things down, the idea of asking tough questions is actually really important, right? Not just with yourself, but with other people in your life. So why don't we chat a little bit about that? I know that this is a category that you've done a little bit of work in as well.
0: Yes. And so we were talking earlier about how it's kind of hard to know ourselves. And one way you can kind of get an insight into yourself is by asking yourself a question that maybe kind of gives you a perspective or uh, or lens into yourself that you um, that you might not have noticed before. And, and again, back, back to these journals, I have a Know Yourself Better journal because a lot of people do find it really helpful to have these sort of reflections to kind of guide their thinking because it's hard to just look in the mirror and see what's there. Clearly, it's like if somebody, but if somebody asks you, like, a really good question. So here's a funny thing. A lot of adults don't know what to do for fun. Like they know what's fun for the whole family. They, you know, maybe right. And then they know work and then kind of like the chores. But if you're like, what what would you do just for fun? If you had a whole day free, what would you do for fun? Or if you had a hobby, what would your hobby be? Or, you know, and so it's like, what do you do for fun? Here's a great question to ask yourself. Mm -hmm. What did you do for fun when you were 10 years old? Emily, what did you do for fun when you were 10 years old?
1: I mean, I played like Xena, Warrior Princess in the backyard with my best friend.
0: So the question is, if that's what you did for fun, what could you do as an adult that would tap into that pleasure? Because what you did... So what (laughs) I did for fun when I was 10 years old is I would copy out my favorite quotations from books that I was reading into these beautiful books, and then I would illustrate them with magazine pictures. And nowadays, as an adult, (laughs) I have... I have a Moment of Happiness newsletter where like five days a week, I send out like a beautiful quotation about happiness or human nature. And it's so fun for me. And I, it's just as I was a 10-year-old, like sitting on the floor and writing it out with a felt tip marker in a blank book. Is exactly how I feel now when I'm like reading a book and typing it into my big document of all my favorite quotations. And, and I'm like, and, I, and, and it's even better because I get to show it to other people. It's not just my book that I can maybe show to a friend. It's like, I can send this to as many people who love quotations as much as I do. But it's fun for me in exactly the same way, but it's adapted to my adult situation. And so, okay playing the like what might that be (laughs) maybe you're gonna start a monthly charades um thing maybe you're gonna do immersive theater maybe you're gonna i mean where could that lead but it's probably something that you would find fun
1: yeah um, no i mean i i hear where you're going with this i don't necessarily think i need to like pick up a fake sword and like go to fort green park and like start no, you, uh, you, 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 know, you colonial williamsburg that, i'm
0: putting on my <laughs> apron and i'm gonna i'm gonna need some dough we're gonna make I'm a gonna
1: candle <laughs> you. i will say <laughs> yeah. you and i obviously uh have many things in common and when i was younger i did a similar thing so i think that that's like kind of these different ways that we engage yeah. with our respective communities i mean i do think that through asking these tough questions we just had a 30 day challenge, um, with a bunch of the hurdlers and it became something that was a really beautiful opportunity, not only for each of the individuals to do some like self inquisition work, but then also to come together and have these conversations because that connectivity and these things that bring us together oftentimes when you are someone that's willing to do this work, that's willing to do this inquisition, finding like-minded people can be a way for us to continue on with that and do more of it. Well,
0: a it's it's often accountability. B we can all learn from each other, and a lot of people you're like, wow, I never thought about sleeping in my workout clothes. That's amazing. I'm gonna do that, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Um, you get you get ideas. Um, and then it, and it goes to that identity. I'm the kind of person who does that. I'm around other people, and one of the things that I found was absolutely striking in my, and for better than before, when I was doing all the habit research, it, 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 it gives all the 21 strategies that you can use to make or break your habits. And one of the strategies and and a very universal strategy is the, is the strategy of other people. And it is really striking how much we pick up habits from other people. Good habits. um, If one spouse gives up smoking, the other one's much more likely to give up smoking, but also to the bad. So we're constantly trading habits back and forth. So if you put yourself in a cohort, like this 30 day challenge and you're like, these are my people, I'm one of these folks, we're all working on this together. That's gonna kind of keep you focused and just that, that being around other people who are doing that, even without you consciously realizing it, that's gonna start to seep in and to shape it and to make it easier to do that. If there's a habit you want, you want to put yourself around people who have that habit. If you, there's a habit you don't want, you want to pull back from people who do have that habit because it's like somebody was saying to me, I want to be, I want to learn to be much more frugal, but my friends are de- the, definitely the kind that like, you know, they're ordering appetizers they or, mm-hmm. you know, and, she, and he says, it's hard for me to hold to my, ha- they're not pressuring me to spend money. It's not that it's just that I don't, it's harder for me to keep my habit in this context. And it's like, right. yeah, that's human nature. So, yeah. And so putting yourself in a a group of people who are really striving for the same thing that you're striving for is enormously beneficial in a a multitude of ways, some of which you're probably not even consciously aware of.
1: Totally. And then on the note of tough questions after a while, maybe someone who starts to ask themselves, some of them can get more comfortable continuing to answer them for someone who's struggling to like open themselves up to that level of inquisition. Is there perhaps like a best practice way to ease into that? Well, I think, you know, there are questions that you can
0: ask yourself that, um, that you can sort of go through. So one question might be, what am I waiting for? Um, So because because a lot of times people are will think, well, I'll start it in the new year or it's going to be like after after the summer's over and everything calms down, like there's always, you know, tomorrow, it's always easier than today. And so sometimes it's like if I'm just waiting for things to get easier, eh, you know what, it's probably like now now is always a really good time. Um, So (laughs) if what am I waiting for? Am I kind of putting myself on pause for sort of no good reason, but just sort of out of anxiety? Um, one question a lot of people say, say helps them a lot is what would I do if I weren't scared? So mm-hmm. if I, if I could just imagine like another person doing it, what would, you know, what, and that can often be, um, an, a, kind of an interesting way to, to get at this. What would I do if I weren't scared is to say, what would I tell a friend, right? Because you're not scared for your friend. Cause your friend's the one that's got to do it. So what advice would you give to a friend? Yeah. Because yeah. you don't feel that fear in relation to someone else. And, and often you, you, you trust in your friend you believe in your friend and you, you know, you have optimism for your friend. What would you say to your friend? Well then, you know, tell, (laughs) repeat it
1: back to yourself. Super helpful, super helpful. And and some good visualization like in that as well. Obviously, as we can tell from the last 50 plus minutes we've spent together, that you are someone that a lot of people look to for advice and for guidance, you've got almost something like 200,000 followers on Instagram and so many beyond that. That's who they see when they look at you. But what is it that you see when you look in the mirror, Gretchen? Well, you know, I try to be very
0: honest with it. So I I, I hope that it's very consistent. Um, But, um, you know, but that is a great question. I'm constantly thinking like, what are my blind spots? What am I, what am I telling myself? is true that isn't true what I, what do i think are my limitations that are not my limitations um, i think i think it's the gra- i think you put your finger on one of the great questions of our lives which is you know who am i actually <laughs> One of the things I realized recently, like right now, I'm working on a book about the five senses and how we can tap into the five senses to really bring ourselves a sense of vitality. And that came from me really looking at myself and thinking, you know, I am really, I'm absent-minded, I'm absent-bodied, I walk around kind of in a fog, I, I don't tap into my senses as much as I should. I think I'm leaving a lot of opportunity for just like appreciating the moment and the world around me. And it was really acknowledging that limitation of myself that got me very, very excited about trying to systematically address that. So I think it was acknowledging something about myself that I, I wish were not true, but, but is true.
1: It's so interesting to hear you talk about the premise for this upcoming project. I know the premise for the happiness project was like the same kind of level of like self inquisition and asking yourself if there was yeah. more that you could do there. Do you, <laughs> theme. Do you ever take a step back <laughs> and like, are you ever your own hype woman? Or <laughs>
0: um, I sort of love this Benjamin Franklin uh, kind of constant guinea pig, constant <laughs> testing. I find it really, really fun. Like, give me a good try this at home. I love that. Um, yeah. So I do not find it exhausting and overwhelming. I, now, do other people around me feel like <laughs> they're innocent bystanders? Yes. My sister, Elizabeth, who's the co-host of Happier with Gretchen Rubin, he, she calls me a happiness bully, too, because oh. I'm that way to myself. But also, if you're close to me and I think that there's a way for you to be happier, like I can get kind of like insistent on that. Um, <laughs> but it comes from a place of love. Um,
1: so, yeah. Does anyone around you ever just tell you how magnificent you are so that you can hear it from somebody else? No, I wish they would. No. All right. I'm here to tell you today, Gretchen, (laughs) you're a pretty awesome, stellar human. Well, thank you. And so are you. (laughs) Of course. Well, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't, before I let you go here, talk a little bit about where we are as a society after the last year, so many people after the last 18 months in this pandemic going through uh, some tough spots and and dealing with everything from negative self-talk to anxieties of just simply walking down the street. So when it comes to us, moving forward with a little bit of optimism and trying to find our happy as we progress, what would you say um, are some of the steps that people can take in finding their happy in this new quote unquote normal?
0: Well, it's, it's, there's been a huge disruption. There's so much uncertainty. There's so much hardship and suffering, certainly. But I would say now more than ever, sort of the advice about happiness, which is like ancient, ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree on this like if you had to pick one aspect of your life, pick relationships to be happy. We need to have deep, intimate bonds. We need to have enduring relationships. We need to be able to confide. We need to be able to get support and also give support. We need to be able to, um, we need, you know, we need to feel like someone has our back. And, and this is part of what has been so distressing about this time is that so many, so many of our, our usual ways of connecting have been disrupted or altered. And that's been really hard for people to manage, but So thinking about, you know, if you're thinking about, oh gosh, should I get on another Zoom call with my college roommates? Like, I'm so tired of that. Or like, should I, you know, oh, next year, my college reunion's coming up. Like, should I deal with the time and the energy to do that? Like anything, like, should I, oh gosh, my friend keeps canceling on me for good reason, but should we just keep rescheduling that hike because it's such a nuisance? Anything that deepens our relationships or broadens our relationships, anything where we are we are giving into our community when we feel like we're making things better or we're helping or we're teaching, anything that goes to those bonds with other people. Um, if I had to pick one thing for being happier, I would say anything, if you're trying to figure out what to do with your time, energy, or money, anything that goes to relationships is something that's likely to make you happier And it'll make you feel more supported. And it will also make you feel like you're better able to support others. And that is also a tremendous source of happiness. One of the best ways to make yourself happier is to make other people happier. And one of the best ways to make other people
1: happier is to be happier yourself. I love that. I love that. Gretchen, what is one of the things that makes you happy right now? Reading. Reading. It's
0: my playground and my cubicle. I love reading. (laughs) And um, so that is something
1: now and forever. Reading. Well, I mean, this beckons the question, what are you reading right now? I am reading The Yellow Room
0: by Sarah Broom, which is okay. a memoir, and it's And excellent. if you had
1: to recommend a book for the next hurdle book club, what should we be reading, Drafton? Ooh, fiction, nonfiction, we're, memoir. We're usually, we're usually leaning into like a nonfiction, like we're talking personal development, self-help, that kind of stuff. Not long ago, we read Grit, so it's like a, a, a hint of where we've been. The Power of Habit.
0: Yeah, that's a good book. I'm trying to think of a great five senses book. Um, Oh, this is Your Brain on Music by Daniel Levitin. It's so exciting. You read all about your brain and how you listen to music. And there's a Uh lot in there about how you can use music to pump yourself up and calm yourself down. And it gives you an appreciation for your body. And so I think for people who are interested in kind of um, self-development, and self-understanding, it's, it's really interesting to, it just, it just fills you with awe about the human body and what our bodies can do without us even noticing the sophistication. Um, it's just, it's, it's really, it's, tra- it's a transcendent thing to think about. And, uh, and it's also like super interesting and practical.
1: If you were to recommend uh, to the hurdlers who have never read any of your titles before a good place to start, would you tell them to start with the happiness project? Yes, unless they're very focused on changing their
0: habits, in which case I would say better than before specifically about habit change. I think the happiness project is probably is a more fun read. It's yeah. it's more on the memoir side and it's and it's all about happiness, which is great. But if you're like, I don't care about this Gretchen Rubin and how she got happier, I want to know like how to get myself to go to bed at 10 30 every night. I'm like, well, better than before will like goes right to the heart of that. So either right one, one of those probably of would be good for the hurdlers.
1: Perfect. Well, Gretchen, the way that I close the podcast every time right now, you have an opportunity to offer yourself one piece of advice going through a big hurdle moment. Let's say the moment when you decided that you were going to stop clerking and start writing. You have an opportunity to offer yourself back then a piece of advice right now, looking back on it. What do you tell yourself?
0: I would tell myself something that I've learned now, but I did not know then, which is if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. And so go into this thinking, it's okay for me to fail because if I fail, I will know that I am trying hard. And if there is no failure, I need to figure out more things to try. So I get my (laughs) failures in.
1: (laughs) I love it. Gretchen, I am so ecstatic just at the opportunity that we had here to sit down together. I know that there's so many takeaways from this time and I'm so grateful for you and the work that you do. And I know that the community is as well.
0: Well, thank you so much. I so enjoyed our conversation. I feel like we could talk all day. So I
1: really appreciate it. <laughs> I wish that we could. How do uh, how do the hurdlers keep up with you? How do they follow along with you? What can they get in on? Give us all the details.
0: Yeah. So uh, if you want to go to sort of the hub of all of my things, you can go to GretchenRubin.com and you can read about my books and there's all kinds of free resources. Um, if you are a podcast listener, which clearly you are, you can listen to Happier with Gretchen Rubin. That's a weekly podcast that I do with my co-host and my sister Elizabeth, and it's all about like concrete manageable ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. I'm on social media everywhere you would look um, for Gretchen Rubin. And if you're interested in the journals, you go to the happiness project and you can find it there.
1: Beautiful. I'm over at Emily body and at hurdle podcast, another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. (laughs)